This Dharma Talk was presented at the Austin Zen Center in Austin, Texas. For more information, visit austinzencenter.org. Uh, good morning, everyone, and welcome to uh, new folks uh, and also visitors. Let me be the last to welcome Colin Gibson, the guiding teacher at San Antonio Zen Center. Colin is a native of Austin, began his practice here at Austin Zen Center many years ago, was ordained uh, here and uh, spent about seven years in California, uh, which is where I first got wind of him actually, uh, practicing at Tassajara and the other practice places of San Francisco Zen Center. Uh, he's a, a therefore well-known to many of you, a very a good friend of Austin Zen Center and, and uh, of many of our, of our members. So delighted that he could find a way to join us on the same day he has his regular program in Austin, i uh, sorry, in San Antonio. Uh, hope to see him in the flesh here when conditions permit. Um, and uh, he'll speak to us today on contentment in practice. And I can't wait. Thank you very much. Thank you, Choro. So I wanted to start with uh, an old Zen story. There was a, a monk named Ikkyu, and he'd been practicing for many years and uh, had had a really hard life. But one morning he was, he was out on a, a boat on a lake and he heard some crows calling and he had a shift, an awakening experience. So later, he met with this teacher and he told his teacher about this experience. And this teacher said, yeah, that's good. But it's not the awakening of the Buddhas and the ancestors. And Ikkyu was quiet for a moment and said, well, it's good enough for me. And the teacher, this teacher said, that is the awakening of the Buddhas and the ancestors. So I first heard this story when I uh, came to Sazen instruction at Austin Zen Center many years ago, a person who was leading the Sazen instruction led off with this story. Back, back, back in those days, um, we only had Zazen instruction every other month. And um, I had just missed the last one, so I had to wait. It never occurred to me that I could just go and show up, but I had to wait for like a month and a half for my Sasan instruction. So hearing this story, um, I kind of, you know, I understood theoretically what the story was about, you know, about the practice or being content. And yet at the same time, 
uh, at that point in my life, you may as well have been describing the far side of the moon to me because contentment was, uh, was the last thing that I was experiencing prior to coming to practice. So what I really would like to focus on is the, the transformation of discontentment into contentedness and how we shift our focus so that that can happen. I suspect that uh, I'm not the only one who experienced discontentment. Going from a dysfunctional home life into the Marine Corps kind of didn't help. Uh, in fact, the uh, one of the mantras in the Marine Corps 30 or almost 40 years ago was that our job was to spread hate and discontent wherever you go. Uh, if somebody talked about getting in a fight, uh, a fist fight with somebody, they talked about, oh, I was, I spread some hate and discontent on that guy. It was really kind of interesting. So the, in the, um, what they wanted us to do was to make the opponent's life so miserable that, that uh, they weren't interested in engaging anymore. So um, thankfully, you know, I left after three years and began kind of shifting out of that kind of bizarre mindset. And when we look, whenever we think about con uh, being content in this country, contentedness for some reason seems to kind of get a bit of a bad rap. There's, um, it has connotations of um, like giving in or apathy. And this really isn't the case. This is really not the case. True contentment is anything but that. So, and it's easy to be discontented. I think this is one of the first things that I would like to, to point out. It often shows up as restlessness, dissatisfaction. Um, a while back I was I was driving down the road and there was there was someone in front of me and I had a perception that this person did not know how to drive. So I watched and 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 their their um, their incompetence became very clear to me. So I, I did what I what I did uh, is something that I, I try to um, remind myself to do whenever possible, which is not to shift out of the lane, but to stay right behind them so that I can watch my reactions. And um, I, I often joke that the uh, that the mantra of the misanthrope is, oh, for God's sake. So I get to watch that arise. And thankfully, we stayed in, in the same direction long enough that I realized, wow, you know, it's, 
it's really easy to be discontent. It's really, it's actually, um, it's a form of laziness. This discontentment, because it doesn't require us looking outside of our own belief system. It does not require us examining how we view the world, how we engage with the world. So when we're aware of that, 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 that don't know mind, it gives more space for that don't know mind to arise. I do not know the causes and conditions of this person's perceived incompetence in driving. But this is just my story. This is just my story. I don't know what's going on. We're never, we're never informed enough to make a judgment or a decision about someone or a situation, even though we try our best. So this discontentment is kind of like carrying a board on your shoulder, right? We have, we have a very, very limited view, an, an incomplete view. We can't, we just don't see the whole picture. And people being people, which includes me and everyone here, we all have this board. We just often aren't aware that we're carrying it. So in, in the practice of awareness, the practice of zazen, the practice of turning the the practice eye inward, we begin to turn the ship just by hesitating and really saying, is this so? Is this, is this really so, this, this, this discontentment? What is it that, that I'm focusing on that excludes any possibility of content, contentedness, contentment? And then we begin to see and experience the effects of, of the delusion. We see how much pain it is causing us and the people around us. Because we're just hosing everyone down with our view, with our, with our stinky opinions. So through this practice of zazen and through the support of a lot of people, teachers and peers, fellow practitioners, we begin to wear away this delusion and discontentment. We always talk about water wearing away stone, but you know, I, uh, if you've, uh, I, I remember many times uh, be, being at Tassajara, being in Tassajara Creek when the water was a little high and stick my head under the water and I could hear the hiss of the sand the small rocks as it flowing through the water. And I realized, you know, it's not the water doing the work of wearing away stone, it's the grit that's doing a lot of the work that's smoothing and wearing away that stone. And so the, in, in this grit in our life, this, is this discontentment, it's up our views. This is what, once we turn the practice eye and begin to see our deluded views, and we and that becomes the grit that wears away the delusion. And through this, 
the groundwork for appreciation is laid. Because actually we can't have any contentment without appreciation. Until we begin to appreciate the small minutiae of our lives, the myriad minutiae of our lives, there's no room for contentment. There's no breathing space. And there's no peace without contentment. It's like taking a step back. If you ever look at a, uh, like an impressionist painting and you're right up close to it, it's just brush strokes and some colors. But when you can take a, a few steps back able to see the whole picture. You see how it all comes together. So this, this practice of meditation, this practice of seeing through delusion, it's not someone else's practice. It's, it's your practice. It's each our practice as it is manifested in our life. It enables us to, to find out our practice, to find out what it is that we're working with and, and learn to embody this transformation. So one thing I wanna be clear about is contentment is not an escape. It's not turning away from anything. It's not aversion but it's a relief, it's a release from our clinging and uh, wishful thinking. It's not complacency because we still sit zazen, we still meditate, we still show up, we still pay attention, we still meet our life and we meet those around us and we come we really come to the understanding that you know just this moment is enough. A few years ago, I was at a vipassana retreat. I'm a, a some of you know, some of you don't know. I practice vipassana as well as Zen. And it was a it was a three week retreat, and at, at some point, I was sitting outside at a mealtime, and I was watching the eucalyptus trees, the, the, the leaves blowing in the breeze. And I, you know, I had this thought, you know, I'm not the greatest meditator in the world. I don't have a surplus of focus and concentration. My mind just kind of wanders all over the place. But you know, I'm actually pretty content with my practice. And um, the next, I think it was the next day, it's, at some point, not long afterwards, I had practice discussion with the, with the teacher leading the retreat. And I, I talked about this with him. And he said, he didn't say that's not the, that's not the awakening of the Buddhas and the ancestors. What he said was, do you know what the Vipassana answer is? to that. I said, I have, I have no idea. 
no idea at all. And he said, the Vipassana answer is to keep having that realization. And what I think he meant, how it landed for me was not having this aha moment over and over and over again, trying to reify it, but to let that realization settle in, settle into my practice, settle into my body, settle into my way of being. So with this is the realization, you know, it, it's really important to understand, to realize, to embody that we're not trying to have someone else's practice or experience. I'm not Kathy. I can't have Kathy's experience or Tim's experience. I can have, I, I can experience mine, but it's a waste of time trying to have their experience. There's, there's an old saying that comparison is the thief of joy. And this is never truer than in practice. This is why when, when beginners come to San Antonio Zen Center, um, they often say, you know, what book should I read? And... Um, I, I, I give them an answer they don't like, which is put the books away for about six months. More likely than not, people have already done a ton of reading before they come to practice anyway. But I, but I tell them, put the books away for about six months and just work on developing a sitting practice. Really establishing you know, a posture that is supportive, that is comfortable, that is sustainable. Find out what it's like to be in this body. Don't go reading these books about other people's experiences because you're gonna end up thinking I'm doing something wrong because I'm not having that experience. Find out what it's like to live in your life. So unfortunately, um, it doesn't go over well. That answer does not go over well. Um, maybe I'll maybe I'll develop a more skillful way to say it. Um, I think it has the effect of being unintentionally discouraging. But it actually what it is is I'm I'm trying to be encouraging. And actually, what I how I experience my life at this point, uh, how I experience practice at this point, how it seems, or what I try to um, convey. It's no longer spreading hate and discontent, but doing, but uh, try and spread encouragement and contentedness. Just for folks to find the small ways in which their life is enough. And as part of that, I, whenever I, I um, do meta practice, I often substitute the word um, happy with the word content. So may all beings be content and know the causes of contentment. Um, 
His Holiness the Dalai Lama says that happiness is our birthright. I would say contentedness is our birthright. Uh, happiness is fleeting. There's an ease in contentment that may not be always present in happiness, kind of like a sigh of relief. So when, when we are content, when we embody contentment, no matter how small or how large or how much that board on our shoulder gets smaller and smaller. And it actually gets to the point where there's, there's no board. We can say that we see the whole picture, but there's no, there's no whole picture to see. Because we don't need a picture to see when we experience contentment. This practice moves us from dis discontentment to appreciating moments of our life to finding small amounts of contentment that we can build on. To actually settling in and truly meeting our life. The old expression goes, being a human being, not a human doing. So the Buddha says contentment is the greatest wealth. Contentment is the greatest wealth. Because contentment gives rise to virtuous action. We're, when we are content, we're less likely to behave unskillfully. violate the precepts and to follow the Noble Eightfold Path. And we find the sympathetic joy in Mudita just spontaneously arises because we're not wanting what someone else has in contentment. So I have two questions then. I don't need an answer. There's not a final exam. The first is, what if your practice is good enough? What if your practice is just fine as it is? And the second is, what if you are good enough? Is that an allowable thought? So Ikyu was out on a boat And you heard some crows and had an awakening experience. Later that day, he talked to his teacher and told him about this experience. And his teacher said, it's good. But that's not the awakening of the Buddhas and the ancestors. Nikyu thought for a moment and said, what's well, good enough for me? And his teacher said, that is the awakening of the Buddhas and the ancestors. Thank you very much. Thank you, Colin, very much for your talk. So questions or comments or are we all totally content? Or disagreement. 
<laughs> or disagreement. Disagreement. Yeah. <laughs> I'm curious. It seems it's very interesting. I've heard of this concept of how time doesn't need to play a role in, I guess you could use the word, our obtaining contentment. And I'm curious if you have any words on how to go about practicing contentment when it takes time to practice getting contentment or if time shouldn't be an important part. Sure. All right. Um, usually what I tell folks is um, even if you die tomorrow, you've got all the time in the world. So um, don't worry about time, just practice your life. Just practice right now. That's the most important thing. That definitely, I, I get what you're getting at. Thank you. Uh, Pat? Hi, Pat. Hi, Colin. So good to see you. I, I loved what you said about is not happiness that our that's our birthright, it's contentment, because that happiness is our birthright always sort of eluded me and made me feel less than happy. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I just wanted to ask you how uh, this isolation of COVID uh, affected your feelings of contentment. Mm. Personal question. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, hmm. Well, you know, like, like uh, many people, I had a hard time at times. I, I experienced discontentment. Um, but uh, I find one of the ways that works for me, um, one of the things that really helps with that is getting out and moving. There's a there's San Pedro Springs Park down the street from this from the Zen Center here, and I try to get out and walk every day. And um, just being able to get out and move, get back in my body, and just to um, being able to appreciate being able to get out and move and walk uh, and get and and being in my body kind of help re-anchor myself. I think that's probably the best answer that I have, you know. Thank you. I see uh, uh, Dave Pakovic and then Karen. Thank you. Thank you, Colin, for your lovely talk. How is um, contentment measured, experienced, when you are a provider for others and their contentment is impacted by your ability to provide, whether you're leading a sangha, you're managing people at work, you have a family, things like that. Uh, so it sounds like a question of interdependence I have a fire station just down the street from the Zen Center, so I want to pause before I say anything. 
I'm reminded of a story um, somebody told me years ago when she was a nurse's aide. Um, and whenever there was like an alarm on the floor, she would kind of get into a kerfluffle about it. And uh, ended up kind of not being a whole lot of help because of it. And finally, one day, one of the nurses uh, pulled her aside and said, you know, it's not your blood. And so, um, you know, for me, it's really making that distinction between my contentment and others' contentment. I can't make others content. There's no possible way I can do it. Um, all that I can do is try to stay as rooted, as grounded, and continue to cultivate the, content, the contentment that's in my life and to try and lay the groundwork for others to find it. But, um, you know, I can't make that happen for other folks. Does that answer your question? Okay. Yes. Thank you. Karen. Can you unmute? No, yeah, there. I had to find myself to unmute. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Thank you for this talk, Colin. I really appreciate it. Um, and I was just, uh, I was listening to the four vows we did at the end, it was just at the end of your talk. Mm -hmm. And sort of thinking about uh, that and those in contentment. Um, there is a way in which um, they're so big, you know, uh, in a way it's unsurpassable. I make this vow um, it's, it's almost like it's so big that I almost come back to contentment or something, but I wondered what your thought is about contentment and the four and the vows. And the Bodhisattva vows? Yes. Um, in the, in the peacemaker order in, um, uh, Kennedy Roshi's lineage. The second vow they have, instead of saying delusions are inexhaustible, I vow to end them. They say delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to, en I vow to endure them. And uh, I've always really, really appreciated that. Because to me, there's this, there's this sense of like uh, endurance or outlasting the delusions. And, um, you know, for me, I think, oh, okay, so that just means I just keep practicing. That, that's all that means. I, I just keep practicing. I just keep showing up to the very best of my ability. Um, and not, and not, you know, uh, not get caught in the literalness of it. Is there too big to strive for almost or yeah, yeah. And, and so we can so we can say you know um, when we talk about I vow to save all beings 
we're actually saying, I vow to save all beings, and that includes me. And that's, um, we can never leave ourselves out of that equation. You know, our own well-being, our own contentment, we cannot leave that out of the equation. Because yeah. even though we talk about not having gaining mind in Zen, um, we do need to some we do need to see some change in order for it to be sustainable. We do need these uh, bits of encouragement to to, to kind of keep the ball rolling. And that's a very unzen answer, I realize, but uh, it's, it's, it's okay to, to be content or to, to aspire to contentment. We just can't get caught up in wanting it. You know, that's, that's where we really suffer. Rich, next. Thank you. Thank you for your talk. Um, I wanted to ask you, you mentioned in your practice that you had, you study in the Vipassana tradition. And I was wondering how, what made you decide to do that? What made you decide that you needed to study with this other tradition? And what, what, uh, what takeaway do you think you got from that, that you didn't, maybe you didn't have in Zen, if there is any? Um, well, the, the, um, the roots of it, a friend of mine um, did a Vipassana retreat with a teacher in California. And um, she was really kind of struggling and um, the, the, if I remember correctly, the, the, the teacher had her do some forgiveness practices. And when she told me, you know, the, the, the mantra of, the, of forgiveness, like that really, really landed for me because we don't really, uh, I'd never experienced that in Zen. Like, the actual taking on of the cultivation of like forgiveness practice, for example. Um, so I was very intrigued by that. And, um, and I knew that, and I knew the teacher because he comes to Tassajara and, and, uh, and um, would give a talk or a class. And so I thought, Oh, I want to see what this person has to say. And, um, there was something that that really landed for me in the language that's used in the Vipassana tradition that that some of the Zen didn't hit. What I do want to say is that is that I didn't start practicing uh, going on Vipassana retreats until I'd been in Zen for twelve years. So um, I'm not a fan of uh, cherry picking practices. I think it's really uh, important to really root ourselves in one tradition so that we can see um, that strengths 
and weaknesses before we uh, before we explore something else. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I guess. Um, I guess what I'm I'm thinking about is that I have noticed in my own life that when I when I read books by, uh, say, Thai forest elders or something, you know, I'm like, wow, this sounds like Zen. It's just it's just phrased differently. It's just they're saying it in a way that doesn't sound familiar. It's like it's there. I mean, it's, I mean, I think the things that they say in in the Vipassana tradition are oftentimes there in Zen, but they're just not talked about in the way that they talk about it in Vipassana. Right. And I don't, I don't know, is that your experience? I mean, I think that you're right. I mean, I agree with you that you need to have your tradition and start from there and stay with it. But you also need to like get different perspectives maybe. Right. It's, it's like looking at a painting from different angles. Okay. Thank you. One of those cool cracker jacks things where you turn it and it's one picture and you turn it just a little bit and it becomes another picture. But it's yeah. the same. Yeah. Same. Yeah. I was I was reading a book by uh Ajahn Cha today and I was thinking I was listening to what it was reading what he was saying and I was like, this sounds like something Dogen would say. And I was like, mm -hmm. okay, that's I think the truth is probably within all the traditions, but they're just expressed differently. I don't know. Yeah, and and um, there's a lot of um, cross fertilization. In some ways, the this Vipassana teacher said that um, said a lot of uh, Vipassana teachers are really really intrigued by the Bodhisattva vow, mm. for example. So it's 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 really kind of interesting, but we have to know really where we're where. Uh, where we're coming from, where we're rooted in, before we can really begin to appreciate some of these other traditions. Mm -hmm. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. We have a few comments. Um, Catherine, Colin, thank you for your illuminating and very peaceful talk. And Kathy Goodwin, uh, thanks for speaking with us. Very helpful, and it's good to see you. And uh, Bill Harnu, I always enjoy your talks. Peace and contentment to you and all of us. Thank you. Thank you all. Catherine and Kathy and Bill. Any other uh, questions or comments or expressions for, for Colin? Colin, can I ask you a brief question? I hope it's brief. Um, I wonder if we don't talk about forgiveness in mainstream Zen that I'm aware of. Maybe I've missed something, but um, we talk a lot about repentance. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm just hit me. Do you think we can really repent without, I mean, is maybe I'll put it this way is, uh, is forgiveness included in repentance? Do you think, or is it something we need to shift our focus to? I mean, when, when I repent, I usually, I come out of the tradition of, you know, breastfeeding, like my fault, my fault, my fault. <laughs> um, but really, maybe what we're called on is to forgive ourselves and our and everyone else. I just wonder what you what you thought. Yes, I, I don't think that we can have forgiveness without repentance. Um, 
and we can't have repentance without avowal. So we, we need to be able to say, you know, I did X, I'm very sorry for it. And, and in my experience, um, like a, a, a genuine and, and a heartfelt apology is a form of self-forgiveness, for example. Um, I don't know if, if, if others have had this experience, but whenever there's been something I've felt remorse for and have completely owned it to that person, their, how they responded was almost irrelevant in a way because there was this release in a way that I felt, even if they forgave or didn't forgive me. But uh, the, I think we need the avowal of repentance and forgiveness, like kind of a package, I think. Yeah, we need to own it. Yes, yes. Uh, Bruce has a question now. Thank you, Bruce. Yes, Bruce. Colin, absolutely wonderful to see you. I, I just wanted to follow up on what Chora was saying, and I'm wondering, because I think a very, I think a superficial or preliminary approach to forgiveness, I mean, there is self-forgiveness, but what, what tends to come up first, or often I think, is it's something that person did. Right. I have to forgive that person. And how does repentance relate to that? And it just popped into my head that maybe it's a matter of avowing what I contributed to the situation, how I co-created that thing instead of pinning it on that other person solely. And also, even if it was mostly the other person, I think I can avow um, and acknowledge my reaction to that thing. Like, like, like I, I, I'm, I'm kind of detaching or trying to let go of how I fixed onto what you did, you person who did this awful thing to me, um, because it is often also talked about um, where I've read about forgiveness is that it's for your own sake, right? So it's, um, so I don't, I don't know how, how well that helps flesh out the picture, but I think that um, I think there may be a tendency with one or the other repentance or forgiveness to focus on me or the other. And it, it's, it's a package deal, right? So yeah. I don't know, that's all I had, but I wanted to, to put that in there. And I mainly also just wanted to say thank you. I, 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 I just so appreciate um, your continuing influence here and your practice. So thank you. Thank you, Bruce. Um, So I, I think um, I think one thing that I, I um, feel I want to put out there as a disclaimer right, is that um, I'm a practitioner just like everybody else. I don't have any complete or whole or special answers. You know, I'm figuring it out as I go, just like everyone else is. So. Um, where I come from is my experiences, you know, what, what I've, what I've, what I've learned in this practice of being me. And one of the, um, one of the things I've, that I've found to be true for this person, for this practitioner, is that we actually can't rush forgiveness. 
what we can do is refrain from adding any additional karmic consequences to the situation. A few years ago, um, I had a, a couple here at San Antonio Zen Center who had, who had a baby and something had gone wrong. And they were um, very, very upset and were, um, something was not done correctly and they were, they were angry at the staff and they were emphasizing how much they were trying to forgive the staff person for this mistake. And um, you know, it's a, you're, you're so close to it right now. It's still so new. Just let this experience land. Work through the emotions that you're feeling right now. Just, just let, it's, it's too soon for forgiveness. Just let this experience just wash through you. And then it'll happen in time. It'll happen, but but we can't we can't force it. We we uh, we have to be really patient with forgiveness, just like we have to be patient with contentment, or with um, any other any other practice. We can't rush it. We can't force content. Uh, we can't force contentment. We also can't force forgiveness. Yes, Tracy. Tracy's raised his hand. Hello, everyone. Hi, Tracy. Hi, Colin. I'm, I'm uh, hearing your voice, Colin, and I'm looking at your face, Charo, and that's fine. I'm just taking a brief shopping break from here at HEB to say it's so good to see you, Colin. And I like your topic. I liked a couple of things you said. Um, that one about uh, being a human being rather than a human doing, that, that really speaks to your topic for me. And also, uh, yeah, happiness is a very big, big word that people have a lot of ideas about. I'm having less problems with it as I get older, but yeah, I'm still inclined away from that word. And I'm also, oh, per something else you said, I'm also inclining toward feeling comfortable with uh, some result orientation as encouragement and practice, and that's not a problem. Uh, what I'm trying to get at here is your topic of contentment, and that word really for me, and wondering if, well, the word that I've been using for myself has been um, peace as a synonym. This is my question now. Would you, and if I could define peace here, not like say as a state, although there's nice feelings that go, can go with that feeling of peace, yes, as a state, as what comes and goes. But, um, but you know, the idea of absence, of um, absence of longing, absence of uh, seeking, 
And that translating into a feeling of what I'm calling peace here, which I'm wondering for you if that might work for you as another synonym for contentment. And good to see you again. Now mask up again now. Well, thank you, Tracy. Um, I, I don't see any reason why peace couldn't be a synonym. Um, contentment is just the word that lands for this, for this person. It's really a, a matter, you know, for some folks it might be ease. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's really about, you know, what our own experience is and how it manifests. Colin, I'm so sorry. I, I, I had my earbuds out. <laughs> I have my earbuds in now. Boy, it's a complicated operation, you know, and while yes. shopping to be. Uh, but would you be so kind, uh, 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 not to take too much of your time, our time, but uh, to say what you just said one more time? I was saying that uh, uh, peace would peace works. I was saying contentment lands for this person. Another one might be um, might be um, ease. Thank you so much. That's another fine word that I've been uh, resonating lately as well. There are many comments uh, expressing appreciation and how wonderful it is to see you. And uh, one um, person says, for me, forgiveness implies some culpability or blame to be recognized, but culpability seems to imply that one could have done otherwise. It's just not clear to me how we can think both about being able to do otherwise and being a manifestation of interdependence of various kinds. That's a, that's a big question. Mm, yes. I, mean, I, I think that's a whole other talk on forgiveness. Yes. Maybe you'll give it to us someday, Colin, in it's, the flesh, it's, perhaps. It's, it's a very, very, uh, uh, forgiveness is, is, it's an intense and can be complicated, can be a complicated topic. I think we can maybe leave it here. If there are no other burning questions, I don't see any hands. Colin, thank you. Feel free to hang out, but also feel free to scoot. I have a meeting at 11.30, so I have to okay. go. All yes. right, thank you so much. Okay, thank and, you everyone. Yeah, wonderful to have you. Thank you.